are in Luke. Last time we did signs of the kingdom and eschatology and so forth, and we were in Luke 17, and that corresponds with Matthew 24. So where we're going to be tonight is one of the series of conflicts that he has with the Pharisees, and certainly it involves money, and that is in Luke 11:37 through 12:34, and that will correspond with the same thing in Luke 16:9 through 31. I will tell you that certainly money is an undertone, but that's not the main thrust, at least as I read it, of what's going on. So let's jump in here. I am in Luke 11:37. While Yeshua was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. You guys have been around this long enough that you recognize that washing before dinner in this culture doesn't really have anything to do with sanitation. It's a ritual. If you go into a Jewish deli, for example, they'll have a sink where you can go wash. And I don't know what the entire catechism is on it, but I think that you wash and you hold your hands up and they have to drip so much and so forth. I mean, there's a ritual to it, none of which is bad. I'm not suggesting that this is a bad thing, but I am suggesting that what is happening here is Yeshua isn't coming in from shoveling manure and just sitting down and eating. It's a ritual thing, not a sanitation thing, per se. The other thing that's obviously going on here, it's what I call the Baptist anal exam, which is when you come into a new church, the people in the church will check you out and find out what do you believe and what are your uh, understandings of the things that they think are important. And I've told this story lots of times. We tried to get into this building twice from Martin Street. The first time was under previous management, and we went before their board of elders, and we got the exam. And they were just very interested in what following the law meant to us. You know, we told them we ate clean and so forth. And when they finally got to something that we couldn't do, mostly because we're not in Jerusalem, they said, aha! You're not following the law. And there was a big sigh of relief because I think they were terrified that we were actually following the law and they weren't and they were going to be convicted. But anyway, that's sort of what's going on. You have a new preacher in town and the people from the establishment want to find out what he's talking about. The other side of that is we had somebody come in with a stack of handouts and he wanted to put them on the table. I said, no. I don't know what's in them. And unless I know what's in them and approve them, no, you can't put them out on our table. So what I call the Baptist third degree is not in itself bad. I'm sort of laughing at it because I get it so often, but it is not in itself a bad thing because you definitely want to know what the folks who are coming into your congregation and so forth think. And if they're peddling stuff that you really don't want peddled. So he is not washing in a way that is ritually correct 
before he lays down for dinner. Verse 39, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. This is establishing a theme for this entire section. And the theme is outside and inside. And the idea is the contrast between the outside, which is visible to the public, and the inside, which is not visible to the public. And he'll use a number of different illustrations of that fact. So this is the first of them. In another version of this story, he comes into the Pharisee's house for supper, and the Pharisee, again, gives him the exam and looks at him really askance. And finally he says, uh, I got something to say. And the Pharisee says, say it. He says, I walked into your house. You didn't give me water to wash my feet. You didn't give me a kiss. You didn't offer me the basics of hospitality. And now you're looking at me like I am some kind of a heathen because of X. So one of the things that you need to understand as you read this is the Pharisee has made his attitude obvious. What he says is not recorded here in Scripture. I don't know whether he actually said anything or whether it was just gave him the old stink eye. But anyway, the response that Yeshua gives is pretty starchy. So it's clearly in reply to an insult. The same kind of thing happens a couple of times. I don't know whether they're the same incident or typical of things that happen. As I say, the response here is so strong that he is clearly responding to an insult. I don't think he just sort of walked up, sat down to dinner, and started excoriating his host. It was in response to something, and that something is that the Pharisee thinks somehow he has violated protocol. So now, Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, so outside, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And then you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? So God made both the outside and the inside. And then we have what appears to be a shift, but I don't believe really is. So in verse 41, give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now, what give as alms mean? So, first place, alms are charity. It's not the tithe. It's taking care of the poor. Give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So, we have contrast between outside and inside. And one of the things that is going to be sort of a running theme throughout the New Testament is that the religious authorities have an image to uphold. And they work really hard at upholding that image. So in public, they are without fault. And as you'll say in just a minute, you guys tithe 
mitten cumin, I mean, trivial stuff, but you neglect the weightier matters of law. That'll be the next paragraph. But the point is, in public, they want to appear as completely righteous. What Yeshua is saying is, the appearance of things in public are not what's important. What's important is the things that you do in private. And the poster child for that is in Deuteronomy 27. I'm picking up at verse 12. When you have crossed over the Jordan, there shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Benjamin. And there shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. And if you read through this list of things that are accursed, they are all things done in secret. Making an idol and having it in secret. Illicit sexual relationships typically are not done out in the town square. They're done in secret. So all of these things are things that are not done in public or are not done so the public can see them. And the point of the Deuteronomy passage is by pronouncing a curse on those activities, what that means is God will take care of the punishment. And in another place in Deuteronomy, it says that the hidden things belong to God and the open things are ours, which is to say we as a society are responsible for correcting obvious overt misbehavior. We are not responsible as a society for pawing through everybody's private stuff to see if they're doing anything wrong. I don't know whether you all remember, but back before homosexuality became mandatory, one of the arguments that they had was, well, you're going to have the government going into everybody's bedroom and checking on these things. That was never the case. And what the scripture here says is those things are secret. Don't worry about those things because God will take care of them. That's the purpose of the curse. What you do want to worry about is gay pride parades where it's out in your face. You see the difference? So what Yeshua is talking about in the case of this section that we're in where he's having conflict with the Pharisees, the conflict is over outside things versus inside things. In other words, public versus internal, private, secret. That's the crux of all of these arguments here. Oh, we didn't ever answer the question that I posed. How about giving as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. And within, I am going to suggest in the context of this little vignette, is the things that are secret, the things that are hidden, the things that are within. And I will suggest that we are talking about here, follow God with your heart, instead of making a show of public righteousness and not following God with your heart. There are two circumcisions of the heart in Deuteronomy. 
The first circumcision of the heart is where Moses says, you circumcise your heart so that it will go well with you and you will remain long in the land. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, he says, after you have done all this sinning and gone into exile and all that kind of stuff, God will bring you back and he will then circumcise your heart. So the first one is, mind your P's and Q's, circumcise your heart, learn to follow the word of God and love your neighbor as yourself and so forth. But God understands that you being human will not be able to do that perfectly. So in the regathering, he will do the circumcision so that you will, in fact, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself because that will now occur naturally to you. So what I am suggesting Yeshua is saying to these guys is give of your inside, your heart, give it to God, and then once you do that, all the rest of the stuff will just follow. The other thing here is in verse 39, but the inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And gee, if they're full of greed and wickedness, what's giving that worth? The point is, if you are giving from the heart, then you cease to be full of greed and wickedness. If you are giving from the inside because you want to give, then there's no place for greed and wickedness. So all the way down to verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So one of the things that very early on always sort of bothered me about church is people would offer everything they had except money. People would say, I give of this and I give of that. And all of those are important and you ought to give those. So you ought to also give your money without neglecting the others. It just always tickled me. In fact, one of the things that sort of put me off the Episcopal Church is we had a pastor and his wife, or a priest and his wife, and they were talking on tithing, and they were saying, yeah, my wife and I are working up to 10%. What? We think we'll be able to afford 10% by the end of next year or something like that, but we're working our way up toward it. I can understand that from me, but if you're going to be the priest, it ought to just come off the top and there hadn't ought to be any discussion about it. And this is the kind of thing that he's talking about when he's talking to these Pharisees. They are going about looking righteous, doing everything punctiliously, but inside they aren't there. comment was that equally problematic is people who regard their tithe as one of the monthly bills to pay. I understand the sentiment, but I am of the opinion that you act the way you want to be and at some point your heart will catch up. Doesn't always, but... So doing what you're supposed to do, even if you don't either understand it or really feel it, is better than not doing what you're supposed to do because you don't understand it or don't feel it. When this finally made sense to me, I don't remember when that was, we just decided that was the first thing we were going to pay every month. And in that sense, it was, this is what we're going to do. And 
The rest of the month will take care of itself. Uh, but we did not do it for show. So, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Remember, now they're full of greed and wickedness. So they are neglecting justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Now the thing about an unmarked grave that makes it halakhically dangerous is inside of the grave there's a dead person. So again we have outside and inside. Same metaphor that we started off with. So now you've got an unmarked grave, so on the outside it looks like normal pavement or normal field or normal whatever, but inside of it, it's got a dead person. And walking over it would make you halakhically unclean. So the same metaphor of outside and inside. And back to Ken's point, with which I agree, the deal here is these folks are doing the letter of the law, but the reason that they're doing it is for social position, not because that's really what they want to be doing. If they could figure out a way not to do these things and still maintain their social position, they'd be quite happy to do it. So then one of the lawyers, <laughs> not leaving well enough alone, so one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't want you to think it was inadvertent. I actually meant to insult you all. So, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, lawyers in this particular society are interpreting halaha. If you have a question about how do you do it according to scripture or according to the law, you go to somebody like this for a ruling. And what he's saying is these folks are extremely harsh with people that come to them for rulings, but they themselves are not doing it, and they aren't ruling in a way that helps anyone. They are using the power to lay extra burdens on them. And your example of the DMV is actually excellent in that sense. I spent a whole lot of my life in a bureaucracy. The Army, except for 20 minutes of terror every 20 years, is mostly bureaucratic. You go through the bureaucracy, and one of the things that you learn is that a bureaucrat can either help you or a bureaucrat can hinder you. And if he wants to help you, when you go in, what he will say, or she, is, oh, this is what we need to do. And I've got the forms over here, and I've got this over here, and this is how you put this together, and this is where it has to go, and we'll make all this work. If the bureaucrat doesn't want to help you, it's, you don't have the right form. What is the right form? Well, you should know that. This isn't filled out right. Well, who has to sign it? Well, it depends. So you wind up getting this massive, massive, frustrating time waste. Our daughter was born in Korea. 
I'm an American citizen. She's an American citizen. The child was born on an army base. You know now why they have bulletproof glass. It's not for the terrorists. It's to keep the Americans from strangling them. The point is, with these lawyers, is they have power. And they are not using that power in a helpful way. They are using that power in an abusive way. Sort of, again, like your bureaucrat that is having a bad day and just wants to feel powerful. So what she'll do is just run you around because you want something that she is able to give you. And she just makes it as difficult as possible because she can or because she doesn't like you, or because she's having a bad day. Any of those things. And that's what he's talking about here. There's a reason that power exists. And the reason for that is it's useful. So when power exists in the hands of someone who is trying to do good and trying to help and so forth, then that power can make things happen. That's why it's there. It's not just there to give somebody an ego trip. It is there because you need that power or authority, either one, you call it either way, to make something happen. And the lawyers have that power, but in this instance, they are not using it for good. They are simply using it as an ego trip. We're all the way down to verse 47. Woe to you, this is the lawyers, woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. In building a monument or the tomb of a prophet, what they're doing is they are saying the prophet was righteous and is one of our honored historical figures. So we're going to honor them by building them a mausoleum kind of thing. However, since you yourselves are not righteous, it is hypocritical. Sort of like what we have going on with destroying all of our monuments in the United States. The people who are destroying the monuments of the Civil War and, and all those kinds of things, if we had been alive then, none of this would have happened. It's the same kind of an attitude. The same incident happens in Matthew 23:29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Now, this is hypocrisy, because what they're saying is, just like our... Black Lives Matter Antifa folks today, they are saying if we had lived back in the time of Jim Crow, it never would have happened under us. People he's speaking to are in fact going to be involved in crucifying him, so they will kill another prophet. Understand that human nature doesn't change. That's why you read the Bible, because all of these examples happen today. Just like we pointed out that this could have been, woe to you, Black Lives Matter. So people don't change, which is why the scriptures are timeless. Luke 11:49. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. 
from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Abel, of course, is Genesis. Zechariah, 2 Chronicles 24, verse 20. So basically, A to Z. You know, he knew King Jimmy was going to translate it. Let's pick it up back to 50. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So, coming off of your comment earlier, the prophet that they are going to kill in this case is the son. The final attempt to get them to straighten out is sending the son, and they're going to kill him. And what he's saying is, you're going to be guilty of it all. The comment was that, according to the prophecy of the vineyard, where a landowner rents out a vineyard to tenants and comes to get some of the fruit and sends servants, and they get beaten up and killed and so forth. And finally he says, they'll respect my son, sends his son, and they say, aha, it's the son and the heir. If we kill the heir, then it will belong to us. So they kill the son. So Yeshua is saying here that I'm your last chance. The thing that happened immediately before this is the attributing of casting out demons to Beelzebub, remember? And that, as I said last time, is a watershed. Much more obvious in Matthew. It happens between 12 and 13 in Matthew. And the point is, up until that time, he speaks plainly as a prophet, telling them to repent. After that, he speaks in parables. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah. Close these people's eyes so they don't understand because they've just passed the watershed. It's now going downhill the other way. Keep talking to them because you have to tell them the truth, but tell it to them in a way that they will not understand it and they will not turn and be healed because they are going into exile. And that watershed happens just before where we are right now in Scripture. The thing that is going to be charged to you is not just my killing, but all the killing that has gone before. Forty years after the crucifixion, the place gets sanded down flat. Verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. This I could spend an hour on. Not going to because we've only got eight minutes. Listen fast. This is also an example of outside and inside. What a key represents is access. So, for example, several places in Scripture, they talk about keys. And it always has to do with access. Somebody who has keys has access to something that is denied to others. So that's the symbolism of a key. And what he's saying to the lawyers is, you have the key of knowledge. You have studied the scriptures. You understand the scriptures. That's your job. And what you have done is instead of using that key to unlock the scriptures for everybody so everybody can enter in, you have used that key to close it and lock it. And the example I will give you is the Bible. People have died 
trying to translate the Bible. And the reason that they die trying to translate the Bible is because the religious establishment wants to keep the keys to the scripture. It's the same thing as the example of the three flocks of sheep. What Jacob finds in the wilderness, three flocks of sheep around a well with a big rock on top of the well, so nobody can get to it. And the shepherds control the flow of water. The shepherds don't want the sheep to die of thirst, but the shepherds also don't want the sheep to be able to drink without them. And so this business of holding the scriptures tight and in secret, in fact, as I say, killing people who tried to translate them, is the case of the shepherds having the stone over the well where the living water is. And if you try and take that stone away so that anybody can get to the water, the shepherds will kill you. And what he's saying here to the lawyers is you have got the key. You have the ability to take the stone off the well. And you won't do it. And furthermore, you don't drink it yourselves. That's what he's saying here. Verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. In other words, they're trying to make him say something that they are going to be able to charge him with. And you remember at his trial before the crucifixion, when he admits to being the son of God, the high priest tears his garment and says, we don't need to do anything else. He has just blasphemed. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to trip him up. <laughs>